Well, let me express what a uh, great privilege it is to be here with you folks today. I've known uh, of your church for many, many, many years, uh, many of your pastors and leaders through the history of the church. So I uh, love what God's doing here and grateful to be a part of it today. The, uh, the message title that I would give today is simply a question. The question is this, is God sovereign? Of course, we can make this very quick and say yes, and then it's sermon done, I guess, but uh, I think there's need for a lot more. The text that we're going to use is found in the book of Genesis. It's going to be uh, over a number of chapters, uh, 45 through 50, and so we'll read that entire text right now, if you'll follow me. Obviously not. Obviously not. Let me do this. I'm going to give you an introduction. You've got an outline in your bulletin insert. The, uh, the introduction has three questions, and here are the three questions we have to have answered before we really delve into the question, is God really sovereign? Number one is the question, what is meant by divine sovereignty? What is that? It's absolute authority plus absolute power. You got to know that. Absolute, which means without limitation, you put his authority and you put his power together. And you have the sovereignty of God, divine sovereignty. Now, when we say absolute without limitations, we're talking about big things, small things. We're talking about good things, bad things. Uh, we're talking about the eternal destiny of each person who ever lives. Now, we ask ourselves, ooh, is that what we're talking about when we say divine sovereignty? Question number two, what difference does it really make? What difference does it make if God is or is not sovereign? I'm going to suggest that it makes all the difference in the world, small things and big things. Let me illustrate. I, uh, I think it was here. What did you do with it, Knox? Oh, it's over here. I'm sorry. All right, I'm going to use this little tumbler. Uh, it wasn't this exact one, it was the same, just a little bit larger. I was, uh, fill it up each evening, have it ready for the morning, water. It's got a little flip top to this particular type and you can open it up and you look at it, you wouldn't tell it's open or closed and on this particular occasion when I filled it up, someone had opened the top of it, I never open it, I usually unscrew the top to be able to drink from it. And uh, so I assumed that was the case when I filled it up in the dark of the evening as I was going to bed. And I set it there right inside a little bag that I had, and it was a cloth bag. And that cloth bag happened uh, to be carrying the written manuscript of a book that I had written. I was meeting with the editors. It was a big day to meet these guys. and and. Uh, I was going to be just talking through it, obviously. It's in, it's in pencil. I, I, I don't use computer. Yeah, I, I just, I want to write handwritten. So I've written the whole thing by hand. And then what I did is right on top of 
maybe a stack of papers this high. I laid this down that night in the bag and went to bed. The next morning, when I was ready to leave, I picked up that bag. My wife, Carol, was in the kitchen with me, and as I started walking out, she says, whoa, 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 something's wrong. You got water pouring out of your bag. I looked inside, and every ounce of water, 20 ounces, had covered that paper, soaked it through and through. Do you know what happens to pencil when water runs over it? It's gone. I'd worked on that for five years. Five years. And my first immediate thought, oh no, no, no. But I was preparing this message for our church that Sunday. I'll never forget, only because I had been working on this message on God's sovereignty. I said, oh, no, no. And then all of a sudden, everything I was preaching came to mind. And I said, within the divine will of God. And you know what happened? As a result, that was a peace of mind that I would have never had otherwise. At that very moment, I had a trust that kicked in and said, you know what? I can't like what happened right now in my knowledge, but you know what? I think I can trust you, God. And I told my wife, I said, you know, we'll just see what happens. And there we go. Does it make a difference? Sure it does. What about when your child dies? Absolutely. Whatever the occasion may be, the truth sets you free. And if the truth is that God is sovereign, and we believe that truth, freedom comes. Now, third question is the big question. Do you believe God is absolutely sovereign? Truth is, most Christians that say, I do believe that, actually put limitations on God's sovereignty. For instance, I preached this message to our church just a few months ago. And I'm walking down afterwards after the service. I'm mingling down here and a lady came up to me and she says, Randy, I'm reading a book right now. It's the hardest book I've ever written. It's on the Holocaust. I had no idea till I started reading this book, the details. The most atrocious thing I've ever, ever read about, known about, it's absolutely beyond imagination. How evil, how bad. Are you gonna tell me that the Holocaust was in the divine, sovereign plan of God? Is that what you're saying? When I come to the end, I'll tell you what I said. And I think, you may agree. With that, I'm going to say to you young people, I know most of our youth are gone, or your youth are gone, and, uh, but I see some younger people here. If you're able to follow, if you're old enough to listen and understand, let me tell you, this is a game changer. This truth becomes a game changer to you. 
I don't know if we have many people here that are seeking to understand the faith, not yet believers. You hear this sermon, let me tell you. You're going to get a, just a hint of why what the believers have is so beautiful. Why it's so good. So let's jump into it. As you see in the outline, we have three stories that are being told. And the, the first one is, I'm going to call it the historic story. Uh, meaning just what we see in print. Take it at face value, Genesis 45 through 50. Then embedded within that story are two other stories. And we'll walk through these three. Both are redemption, uh, redemption stories. Uh, the, what we call first the greater redemptive story. Redemptive means salvation. So redemptive salvation story. It's the greater story. That's God's sovereign redemption plan for man's eternal salvation. Think of the big story within these chapters we're going to look at. The big story has to do with what God did for mankind at large so that we might have life with him even now. Then there's a, a third story. It's, it's what I'm going to call the lesser story. Don't think by lesser it's not important. It's just lesser in comparison to the first. This is God's redemptive plan for man's personal relationships and life circumstances. Now we're talking about you and me. So let's, uh, let's look at it. First, the, the historic story. Not going to read it all, but I'm going to walk through it. This is going to be the fastest survey or overview of five chapters you've ever heard in your life. If you've never read the Bible, you don't know anything about it, you'll understand it enough to follow the message. Most of you have read it before. You might want to read it in full, even today. But here is how these chapters build. man named Jacob... Abraham, his father, Isaac, our grandfather, Isaac and Jacob, the great patriarchs of the church. Jacob has many sons. And the youngest of those sons is a 17-year-old, is best believed, as you look at this text, at the time we start reading into his story. His name is Joseph. His brothers are jealous of Joseph. Don't have time to tell you why, but they're very jealous, partly because of some bad things that, that Joseph was doing that, uh, that made them very furious. So their first plan was to kill their brother and then finally because of some circumstances that happened they said no we're going to sell him to a caravan of Ishmaelites and they're going to be going into to Egypt and they can get rid of him there. We'll never see him again and we'll tell our dad that he died. The Ishmaelites arrive in Egypt. They sell Joseph to an Egyptian officer named Potiphar. Well, Potiphar's wife, she very much liked what she saw in this Joseph and so she she tried to seduce him he fled he said I'm not gonna have anything to do with this she humiliated lies to her husband and instead says that Joseph tried to do things to me sexually with that in his anger he threw Joseph into prison where there Joseph in time meets the cupbearer of the Pharaoh himself. He'd been thrown into prison. Well, Joseph meets the cupbearer, and the cupbearer 
has had a dream and he's all upset about how do I figure out this dream? And Joseph said, uh, not me, but because of the Lord, I can interpret your dream. He did, and the cupbearer was so impressed when his dream was true, he finally was released. And he goes back to his original job with, with Pharaoh. And after he's released, he's with Pharaoh. Pharaoh has a dream and he's all upset because he can't figure out this dream. And so the cupbearer said, hey, there was a man in prison. He's still there. He was there with me. He interpreted my dream. I bet he can interpret yours. And so he said, well, let's get him out. And so here comes Joseph out of jail. He interprets the dream. It has to do with 14 years, seven years that there would be, be plentiful rain and all kind of great crops. And then seven years of famine would be coming. And, and, and he told him that. And sure enough, that's what started happening. And so he takes Pharaoh. He takes Joseph. And he says, hey, Joseph. You're amazing. I want you over all that I have. You will be in essence under me over Egypt. And so he began to rule in that kind of capacity. Then you, uh, you see over and over again in this story, these words that I'm, I'll show you as we walk through, but over and over again, they said, the Lord was with Joseph. It means he was blessing Joseph. And with that, Pharaoh delighted. It says in our text that all the nations came then to Egypt because they had the abundance stored up for seven years. So Joseph's brothers, they come and they as well, by led, sent, sent by their dad, they come in and say, we got to get food from you guys. And they were coming to get the food. And, and all of a sudden, who is before them without him know, them knowing? It's their brother Joseph. They don't recognize him. This has been years and years that have gone by. He was in prison for years, as best we can tell. Then we come to these verses. If you want to read, follow along with me. Genesis 45, 4 through the first part of verse 8. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Please, come closer to me. They came closer and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And look at verse 5. And now, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse 6. For the famine has been in the land these two years. There are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth. Keep that in mind. And to keep you alive by great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Very interesting. We come to chapters 46 through 50, and Jacob and his family eventually move over to Egypt. Jacob dies, and when he dies, the brothers are so afraid that now retaliation from their brother will come because daddy's dead, there's nobody to step in between, and so they're very frightened. And then we come to chapter 50, verses 18 through 21. Genesis 50, and this is what we read. Then his brothers also came, fell down before him, and said, Behold, we're your servants. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid, for am I in God's place? And as for you, you meant it for evil, 
but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So now let's look at the second major point you have there, and that's the greater redemptive story. This is the redemption of Israel. This has to do with the, the redemption of the church. That's the bigger story. And how all of this plays into a master plan story that's going to leave us with not just the kingdom of Israel under God's rule and authority, but now the church worldwide of which he reigns over his church. Now at this point, because of time, I'm going to squeeze this down. But I want to give you just the bigger highlight here. We could go into this in depth. It go on and on. But let me tell you, you look at this story of Joseph. If there were no Israelites in Egypt, you would not have the redemptive story. If there was no bondage in Egypt, if there were no exodus from Egypt, if there was no Passover lamb that made that exodus possible, if you know the story of the Passover lamb, if there were no promised land coming out of that place to a place that's been promised by God, all part of the bigger redemptive story, if you didn't have all of that, there would be nothing pointing to the Lamb of God. There would be no promised land to be understood. It was part of God's greater redemptive story. Now, I think you can see that the gospel story has God's sovereignty stamped all over it. I hope you would embrace that. I think most of you do. But it doesn't mean we embrace fully the sovereignty of God. So let's look at the third point, major point. This has to do with the lesser redemptive story. This happens to be Joseph's redemptive story. So we're coming down, talking from all of Israel and the church, now to just looking at one person, Joseph. And throughout this whole entire 45 through 50, you see these incredible insights. I'd love for you to go back and just read and see if you don't see it. But this just summarizes three insights. Number one, see if you agree with what these are. Number one says God is sovereign. Therefore, no relationship or life circumstance is the result of chance. They are all God-authored. Look at the relationships of Joseph and his life circumstances. If you delve in and see what the brothers did to him, that could be devastating for any young boy to be sold, almost killed by his brothers and put into bondage. The Ishmaelites, that they happened to be coming along at a time to preserve his life from death. Potiphar's wife and what she did you look at the story of the cupbearer, happened to be there and happened to be released and happened to tell, and then there was a dream, another dream. You look at that and say, you can't make up this story. Oh, you could make it up, but the only way you could match it in real would be the sovereignty of God. And then the whole story of Pharaoh, and we could go on and on. Westminster Confession of Faith, which 
in my opinion, is one of the most uh, outstanding writings uh, ever written to help Christians understand the Bible. This is what we use in the PCA as our confession. In chapter 3, listen to what it says. It says, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. I hope you would agree, if they're right, what they're saying is, whatsoever, it's everything. You mean something so small as just water? You talking about something so large as the death of a child, a diagnosis of cancer, the Holocaust? I love the way R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul, in his book, Chosen by God, listen to how he puts it. He says, to say that God ordains all that comes to pass is simply to say that God is sovereign over his entire creation. If something could come to pass apart from his sovereign permission, then that which came to pass would frustrate his sovereignty. If God refused to permit something to happen, and it happened anyway, then whatever caused it to happen would have more authority and power than God himself. And if there's any part of creation outside of God's sovereignty, then God is simply not sovereign. If God is not sovereign, then God is not God. And if we reject divine sovereignty, then we must embrace atheism. You might be like, like I was in, in hearing this, it'd be like when I heard my little daughter, when she was years and years and years ago, a little child. And whatever it was that I said she couldn't have, and she breaks down just bawling and crying and, and she says, if I don't get these shoes, then some, and if that happens, then this is going to happen. And by the time she got through, the world didn't exist anymore. The world's existence depended upon her shoes. And you go, oh, wait, there's some error in there. You track this down, you're not going to find error. It's as logical as it can possibly be. So let's look at number two, sub point. God ordained relationships and life circumstances can be under, uh, undesirable and painful ones which may or may not be the result of one's bad choices or sinful behavior. So you look at Joseph's conflicts and his circumstances, much of it was because of some bad choices he made. The whole problem, in essence, began in light of that. His brother's bad choices, Potiphar's wife, good choices. So good or bad choices don't seem to matter. A lot of people seem to think the big, big bad things, the choices and behaviors of certain people are outside the sovereignty of God. And the good choices and behaviors are within. Not what the Bible would teach. So let's look at number three. Number three, for the believer, undesirable and painful relationships and life circumstances always work together for good and provide opportunities to honor God. So you can look at Israel and the church's bigger story, the worst of the circumstances and the horrible things we've already gone through. You can look at Joseph's story. We shouldn't be surprised when we come across that great text in Romans 8, 28. For we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, called according to his purpose. So the third sub-point. Sub what about your story and my story? 
I don't know your story. You don't know my story. But I know in part of my story, it had a big impact in my larger story. My father, he and I were as close as a father and son you could ever imagine. I can honestly say I never remember having a conflict with my dad. I never remember an argument. All I remember of him is hugs, kisses, and I love you, I love you, I love you. Couldn't have been any better. Until one day, when I was an early young student in college, and I was out of town at the time, my mother called me and she said, I've got some horrible news for you. Your father has left a note. He has packed everything. He, I got home. He's gone. Everything's gone. I have no idea. But he left a note for you and your brother. He said, I'll never see you again. I'm so sorry. If you ever get married, hug your wife for me. If you ever have children, kiss the kids for me. Goodbye. And he kept it till years later, I find out he had died. You hear that and say, now wait, wait, wait. That part of the sovereignty of God? You know how I handled that? It was interesting. I had just been to church out of town and I was walking up the driveway thinking about the sermon that I heard. It was out of 1 Peter. It was about suffering, pain, heartache. And it was preached in such a rich way that it caused me to go, oh my goodness, what a blessing to suffer. And I remember pausing before I went into the house where I was staying. And I said, Lord, I've never known real suffering. And if you need suffering to come into my life to make me who I need to become, I'll invite it though I don't want it. And when my mother said that as a non-believer, she tells me this, all I could say is, Mama, you don't understand this, but there's a design in the whole thing. And we're going to have to trust God with this. Do you know she became a Christian through that? Great things came out of it. You know, I know this. I could not have selected a better wife. I could not have selected. But I know this. She would say, you could have selected me a little bit quicker than you did. Because we dated five years before I told her I loved her. We were out of college. And, you know, and she's going, what in the world? And I say, you don't understand. I got to make sure I find the right person. Because I know my parents struggled in that area. I didn't know it, but I found out they did. And so with that, I thought, I, I'm so thankful now. I don't know. I can't see all things. But I know this as a counselor to people in our church through the years, people that have been deserted and deserted and deserted. And I go, I understand. And they say, you do? How? And I tell them, they say, good, let's talk. And I wonder how many people got blessed because I could talk to them with them having open ears. Don't know about your story, but I'll tell you this. I believe that as we read, for believers, undesirable and painful relationships and life circumstances always work together for good and provide opportunities to honor God. So there's the, there's the sermon, except for a closure. Here's the conclusion. You have it in your notes. 
two primary struggles. If we're going to really be real about this stuff, we've got to talk, what is real life? What do we really struggle with? What causes you and me to say, I can't really imagine I could trust God with that. It's God, that couldn't be under his sovereignty. Two things that are big struggles. See if you identify. Number one, to believe God is sovereign over the painful suffering of mankind and especially of his people. When you read the events of the news day in and day out and hear, hear some of the tragic things that have happened, the injustices that have left people, oh, you, you, I know what you do, you do what I do. We think, Lord, why would you let that happen? Why would, why would you do that? Well, it's a, it's a big subject. We can't tackle it in full, but I'll tell you what I can leave you. I can leave you with a quote that's going to open a door for you. My bet. Many of you know the name John, Johnny uh, Erickson Tata? She and Steve Estes wrote a book. It's called When God Weeps. I just would love everybody to read that book. But in it, they make this statement. Hear it carefully. God ordains what he hates to accomplish what he loves. There can't be a finer statement in the hardest of times. Oh, wish we could preach and spend another. I'd have two sermons. This really would be two sermons where we talk about what does God love so much that he would let that kind of pain come into this world. You try to find the answer and they're there. And you begin to realize, oh my, how good is that? I have uh, 15 grandkids. And uh, these kids range different ages. But there was one thing Carol asked me on my 70th birthday a couple of years ago, said, uh, what do you want for your birthday? I said, I want to spend time with my grandkids and my children all together alone. Don't, want any, don't care for anybody else to be there. And I said, I want to play a little, gave them an offer. I said, my, my, uh, our vacation is going to come about three months before I turn 70. And I want, to, I want to make an offer at my vacation to them. And here's the offer. I said, kids, if you can remember four words, four words in three months, I'll give you all 20 bucks. Well, they're little kids and this and the other, you know. 20 bucks was like, Wow. I just have to remember four, yep. But nobody can remind you. Your parents can't remind you. Your mom or dad, whichever is my child, has to be able to do it too. And these are the three most unwanted gifts from God. And here they are. The three unwanted gifts. The last one has two words, the other one word. The first one. You know what we don't want? But they're gifts from God? Suffering. We don't want suffering. Can you remember that word, suffering? Number two, we don't want weakness. I want to be the best in the class. I want to be the most handsome, most popular. Oh, uh, whoa, whoa, whoa. God will give us weaknesses. Do you know what else he'll give us? He will give us denied resources. We'll want more. God won't give it to us. And I said, we're going to take a picture. If you can do that, I'm going to take a picture of you with me holding a $20 bill. 
And then I'm going to tell your parents, remind them of this every time they're growing up, going, I'm suffering it so bad. And let them learn. And you parents, you teach the kids why those are good. God hates the suffering, but he loves what comes out of it. There's a second one. This is the big one. This is the big one. To believe that God is sovereign over man's eternal destiny, choosing some and not others. Wait, how can God choose some and not others? Some people say, well, it takes away free will. It must not really be there. No, it doesn't. You can't argue that. Not in reality. We either lose lose one of those we don't really have a biblical teaching on God's sovereignty so Christians reject it you know this lady that came to me she came up to me about the Holocaust and she says I explain that and I said no let me just ask you a question if God is not sovereign over the Holocaust where do you draw the line that he's over something? Have you got any definitive place that how bad, how intense, how is it? And all of a sudden she looked at me and says, no, I don't know. I said, I think it's all or nothing. But here's my story, and then I'll just wrap her up, with a few comments. I was a young student in high school, and I came to Christ. And when I came to Christ, I was trying to diligently follow him. And I began to read the Bible in ways I'd never read it before. And I came up to the book of Romans. I started reading Romans. And I saw it there that it makes a statement in chapter 9 that God, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. And I didn't understand that. And I said, wow, how did he? So I, uh, and he chose him before the foundation of the world it, you know having done no good or evil that his choice would stand and I'm going what I belong to a Methodist church they were a liberal church they didn't they didn't believe the gospel I didn't know better and so I I said to my parents can you explain Romans 9 they didn't know what Romans 9 meant they didn't you know and said I know that's why we got a preacher we pay him let him so I got an appointment with them they got me an appointment with my preacher and I go and I said can you tell me about Romans 9 I, I just read this and I don't see how this makes any sense at all and he looked at me and he said well it makes no sense whatsoever I'll tell you that and for that reason I have torn the chapter 9 of Romans out of my Bible it's not even in there which was saying I know it teaches it I just can't believe it and that was kind of my mindset on that sort of thing. And then I went to a conference. And I wish I had a whiteboard here, a screen or something, but you're going to have to just imagine. There's a big blackboard here, and I was talking to the professor who had taught a class that I was in in a summer project that I was a part of. And he talked about, this is one of the great scholars of, of our day. One of the most brilliant men you could ever imagine. One of the most godly, holy men you'll ever meet. And he talked about God's choice of people. And everything in me was, no, no, I want to tear that one out. No, no, no. And I went up to talk to him. And I said, Dr. So-and-so, I can't believe what you just taught. He said, why is that? I said, because it makes no sense whatsoever. And with that, in a very kind and gentle way, he went to the blackboard with a chalk, chalkboard. 
And he takes that piece of chalk and imagine a huge blackboard. And he said, Randy, is the blackboard finite or infinite? I said, it is finite. He said, okay, let's use that to represent the knowledge of God. By the way, Randy, would God's knowledge be finite or infinite? I said, it'd be infinite, kids, meaning forever and ever and ever. No ending. Finite with ending. And he said, okay. Then he draws a circle. The circle's about yay big on that board. He draws a circle. And he says, let's just say that this circle represents all the accumulated knowledge of mankind forever and ever and ever, all put into one place. And what is that, about a tenth of this whole board? So let's assume that is the accumulated knowledge of all mankind. Now, have I understated my case or overstated? I said, well, you've understated it because that's, I know that that board goes forever and ever and ever. That, you wouldn't even see that circle. I said, he said, correct. Then inside that circle, he drew a little circle about a tenth of the size of the full circle. He draws that little circle in it. And he says, let that circle represent the most brilliant, knowledgeable human that has ever existed. Probably right now with expansion of knowledge. And so that's this person's knowledge compared to all the knowledge through all history. Have I understated it or overstated it? I said, we've well, understated it. He said, you're right. That would just be a dot. You couldn't see it. Then he said, let me ask you this. And he takes his little piece of chalk and just pops it right in the middle and makes a little dot. And he says, so let's let that dot represent your knowledge. And he assured me this was his biggest understatement, that the dot was too big. But anyway, there's that dot. And then he said, put, start, started putting X's. He erased all the other circles and he left that little dot there and he started making little X's all over that board. And he said, let's let these X's represent the ways of God. Do you think it's possible that somewhere on this board that goes forever and ever and ever and ever and ever with all the decisions God ever makes, that maybe something out there could be true that does not fit on your little dot that is way too big. And you know with that, my heart melted. And I went, I have no argument. You know what it caused to happen in my life? It caused me now to wake up in the morning, drop to the knees, and say, oh Lord, thank you for your sovereign love. Do I feel loved by God? Absolutely. Do I understand it? Not really. Can I trust it? Yeah. And that's why I have a daily prayer. Not every day, but it's routine and often through the day. And that little prayer simply goes like this. Lord, enable me to believe what I cannot see and to understand what I cannot know. Great prayer to pray. I'll say this, and this is my closing quotes. Listen to this. If you want to trust God in all things, you've got to believe in the sovereignty of God, but folks, that's not enough. You've got to believe in his sovereign love. You've got to believe in his love, not just his sovereignty. That he who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall not with him freely give us all things? The love of God. So Lorraine Bettler, 
Lorraine Bettner puts it like this. Although the sovereignty of God is universal and absolute, it is not the sovereignty of blind power. It is coupled with infinite love, wisdom, and holiness. And when properly understood, it is most comforting and reassuring. Who would not prefer to have his affairs in the hands of a God of infinite power, wisdom, holiness, and love rather than to have them left to fate or chance or irrevocable natural law or to a short-sighted and perverted self? Those who reject God's sovereignty should consider what the alternatives they have left. David Platt, pastor, writes a one sentence that's very strong. He says, the sovereignty of God is the only foundation of worship in the midst of tragedy. And Charles Spurgeon, when you go through a trial, listen to this, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you may lay your head. My prayer, first for you young people, you're going to have this world saying things and you're going to say, it makes sense, it makes sense, but I know God's word says different. You trust God's word. And you're going to have freedom that your peers won't have. And you'll find people looking at you saying, how? How can you be this way? What is it? I need something. And you become a messenger board to them just because you embrace things that are in the Bible that you don't fully understand. And you without Christ. I know you're looking saying, well, I don't know, this is hard. It is. But you search with all your heart and you stare at the cross. You find Jesus on the cross. And your understanding, and your understanding, stare at it. And see if you don't fall in love because of his love for you. Then you know you're his. May God give everyone here ability to say I believe in the sovereignty of God and I believe it is limitless and then start looking for those days where you have to say oh no but oh okay what you know sets you free when it's truth let's pray father in heaven would you grant us to be a people who do just that that we trust you and find our hope in you I pray father that you would grant that anybody that's here without you that they would find today just the appeal of your love understanding your power and may they find themselves under your loving hand rather than outside it grant them to meet people that can explain it and help them even more and one day to walk with you and show it to others we ask this all in the great name of our savior amen